Hey, and welcome back to the history of China. You didn't think I'd just quit, did you? I know, though, though I know. It's been a while. Two weeks now, I've been counting, with no new episodes. Some of you did reach out to make sure I was okay, but I assure you that I'm all good. The reason for the break was that I was moving my whole life, podcast included, across the country, packing, loading up, driving, unpacking, organizing, and getting a whole functional house up and running was, well, way harder than I predicted. But don't worry, I'm back. And if you love the show, though, I wanted to give this quick announcement. It would mean a lot if you give it a follow. And if you really, really love the show, it would mean so much to me if you share it with others that you think would be interested because, look, let's be real, new listeners can never hurt. Okay, so where were we? Ah, yes. Last time, we discussed the ideologies of the Warring States period. And to refresh a bit, because it's been a while, this period is also known as the Hundred Schools period. We covered the basics of the three big philosophies from the day. The first was Tao slash Taoism. The second was Confucianism, which again was not actually started by Confucius himself some 100 years before this. And then finally, we talked about legalism, my personal favorite. And no, it is not in any way because I would want to live under that system. Oh, no, 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 no. That would be terrible. I just love it in the sense that it is historically fascinating. And while I could talk everyone's ear off about legalism, that's not what I'll be doing today, even though, yes, I would probably just be as happy doing that. But Taoism, Confucianism, and most definitely legalism will remain in this story. So just keep them in the back of your head. But this is still the Warring States period. And war, well, war is here. So without further ado, The History of China, Episode 15. The Warring States Period, Part 3. Blood Spilled. We are right back to where this whole Warring States saga started, with our good old friends in what is left of the Jin State. You didn't just think that a bunch of recently separated states just went off into the sunset happily ever after, did you? Just kidding, I'll admit it for a second, I thought that was actually going to happen. But no. Quick recap. In 403, the three Jins, which again were the Wei, the Han, and the Zhao, were formally recognized as quote-unquote equals, although yeah, that doesn't really make much of a difference. Because look, in a warring states period, you either hold your own or you, well, you don't. So regardless, they are now officially official in the eyes of the official or not-so-official Zhou dynasty. So while all three of them are all recognized as equals, they were not fully independent of each other. They were more or less actually a loose confederacy, and maybe honestly like an ancient Chinese version of NATO. Each of the three jins was effectively independent, and they were all recognized as such. But in practice, the three jins, which were the Wei, Han, and Zhao, were actually all under the general guidance, I'm not going to say leadership, but guidance of the Wei state of the three jins. So the leadership of the Wei helped oversee and guide the other two members that made up the three jins. 
No, it wasn't a military dictatorship. They didn't control them. But, you know, it was their guidance and their advice that sort of saw things move along. And like every single really great but really quick change, it seems that there is always a larger-than-life personality behind it all. And in the case of the three jinns, there indeed was such a figure. Born in the Wei state in around the early 450s BC, again, I'm sorry, there is no birth date for this man, but nonetheless, Wei Wen Ho, or otherwise known as Marquis of Wei, was this figure for this particular story. And look, quick side note, just to straighten some things out. The words Duke and Marquis are in every way of the word, they're European. Literally, in every sense. However, such titles are given as essentially equivalents to positions in other cultures. And in our case, yeah, ancient China. A Marquis is, quote, a high nobleman of high hereditary rank in various European systems, and in those of some of the former colonies. The term is also used to translate equivalent Asian styles, as in Imperial China and Imperial Japan, end quote. Now, the Chinese position, or the level of nobility that, you know, the, posi- the European position of Marquis was designed to explain, is known in Chinese as Hou, H-O-U, and to those that have an interest in Chinese, second tone. Now, in practice around the Warring States, and yes, into some of the later dynasties, the position of Hou, or Marquis, was the second of the five noble positions. But again, like many things, its actual role in practice in Chinese society shifted a little bit dynasty to dynasty. And maybe even more confusingly, this sort of role of the whole kind of shifted state to state. So in a time of constant and shifting war, just know this. This is the important part. The position of whole is just extremely noble. And while I constantly pursue the utmost authenticity for this show, I am aware of the current demographics of my listeners. That being that the vast majority are in English-speaking countries. So with that, and to remain able to convey a clear picture to all of my listeners about what is going on, I will refer to Wei Wen Ho, see the state and position in his name, Wei for the state, Ho for the position, as just Marquis of Wei. Anyway, now that the titles have been probably extremely overexplained, I hope you're still with me, Marquis of Wei was part of a very powerful family, and you can judge by his name because his family went on to found the state named after themselves. He became ruler of the Wei clan in 445 BC, succeeding his dad, Wei Huanzi. And in 424 BC, he did adopt the title of Marquis, which, yes, was the Chinese position of Hou. And in 403 BC, the king of the Zhou dynasty, who, yes, while this may not matter, his name was King Wei Lia, because, yeah, let's be real, the Zhou dynasty, eh. He was the one that helped lead the other formal vassal states of Han, Zhao, and his own, in Wei, to be recognized as equals. Thereby, it was extensively under his leadership that led to the splitting of the Jin state, and was probably the backbone of this whole three Jins thing. But you aren't really special, unless Sima Qian gives you a shout-out. I mean, let's be real. 
you can't just not not be given a shout out by Sima Qian. All jokes aside, though, let's check with Sima Qian. What's that? Yeah? Oh, uh-huh. Perfect. Okay, so we just checked up with the Sima Qian annals, and he did indeed praise the Marquess of Wei for his eagerness to learn. That's his direct quote, his quote, eagerness to learn. And Sima Qian elaborates on this point by explaining that Marquess Wen of Wei had sought out consultation from all the best thinkers, from all the schools of thought, including Confucian scholars, Taoist scholars, and even went so far as to appoint a legalist scholar to his court. And now, in regards to this legalist scholar, the scholar is said to have had the following policy and worldview. He said, quote, To eat, one must labor. To receive a salary, one must provide fantastic service based on merit. Those who do not will be punished, end quote. And at the same time that this legalist scholar was implementing new ideas in the form of actual government policy in the Wei state, Marquis Wen of Wei pushed across the Yellow River to the Luo River, taking over the area of Xi He, which literally means west of the river. So you're already starting to see here the philosophies play a big deal. He's consulting Confucius thinkers, he's consulting legalist thinkers, and some are even making actual policy in the state. And some of these philosophies, like, well, the really brutal worldview of the legalist, is helping them make a really effective state. And the Marquis's vision and leadership had helped so much to bring about the three jinns. But he was almost too good. But that success might have also been a root cause to this whole NATO-esque system falling apart. Marquis Wen of Wei was unbelievably good at his job. As Sima Qian said, he loved to learn, and he took all the ideas from everywhere and took the best ones at that. He was fantastic at consolidating power. He was great at creating effective government systems. He was even better at controlling his military, and you can see this through their expansion. And yes, he was very open-minded about leadership appointments. So with all that, he had made his state so much stronger than the other members of the three jinns. But the other members of the three jinns began to get really uncomfortable. Look, they were all great when they started this whole thing in 403, but the whole reason they started this whole system was because they thought, look, none of us can realistically gain the upper hand on the other. But now the Jiao, one of the three jinns, were the first to get cold feet with this whole three jinn system after they saw the Wei state, which were their neighbor. The Jiao were in the middle, Han to the east, Way to the west. Regardless, the Zhao got cold feet when they saw the Wei state balloon in power and size. And they promptly pulled out of all agreements in 383 BC. In fact, the Zhao state was so spooked by everything they saw happening to their fellow three Jin state member that they not only, yeah, backed out of the alliance system, but the Zhao state then went the extra mile of moving their capital further away from their now ex-ally. Then, on top of going the extra mile, the Zhao state then invade a neighbor state to bolster their own holdings compared to the Wei state. And now this is where it's going to begin to get really confusing. Not because the ideas aren't there, but the names sound the same. Hear me out. So, the Zhao state, in an attempt to bolster their own holdings, attacked the small state of Wei. But no. 
Not the three Jin state of Wei. That's W-E-I. The Zhao instead attacked to their south, to the small Wei state spelled W-E-Y. But this wouldn't really be the warring states period without, well, more war. So under siege from the Zhao state, the W-E-Y Wei state sent emissaries to the best chance they had at finding legitimate help. I mean, the Zhao state's still pretty strong. And in a move that would confuse podcast listeners around the world, the Wei, W-E-Y state, called upon the W-E-I Wei state of the Three Jins for help. So the Wei asked the Wei to help them. Now, the Three Jins Wei state was not one to back down from a chance to further consolidate their power and promptly invaded the Zhao state from their western flank. And now... This is what makes the Warring States so intense and also so confusing. The Zhao had attacked, but then in doing so had been caught with their side door wide open by the state that had caused them to seek more conquest in the first place. And now the Zhao, with their back suddenly against the wall, turned and called on another state to help them. The Zhao called on our old buddies the Chu for help. All right, are you as confused as me? Okay, quick fire recap. The Wei state, the Three Jin's Wei state, that is, were the de facto leaders of this whole Three Jin system. But with the leadership of Marquis Wen of Wei, they got a little too powerful for comfort, and their border neighbor and Three Jin's partner, the Zhao, got worried about all this and promptly left the alliance and in turn, invaded another state to grow their own power to counter the growth of their neighbor. You know, it makes sense. They're getting really big. Maybe we should get bigger. But the state the Zhao attack is another state named Wei, but it's a different one. It's spelled different, and it is much, much smaller than the three Jin's Wei state. Regardless, the small Wei state then calls on the big Wei state for help. You know, they call them the W-E-I one for help. And the three Jin's Wei state says, absolutely, and they just crash into the now undefended Zhao state. So the Zhao moves south, leaving their state relatively undefended, and then the big Wei state, with a call from help from the original small Wei state, come in through the west. And now the Zhao, who were the first to invade, have now called on the Chu for help. So we got four states involved now, okay? Okay. The Chu state were far away, though. They weren't close like the two way states were to each other. And they weren't close to the Zhao. I mean, they were close, but they weren't that close. And they were going to have to see some real benefits if they're going to engage at all with this now multi-sided mess of a conflict. And the Chu state want really one thing, and that's land. But why? Well, think back to a few episodes ago. The Chu had just gotten absolutely bodied by that Wu state upstart. Remember them, the WU First Navy? Yeah, regardless, recovery is on the mind of the true state, and that recovery is really going to come in the form of prestige and land. And the true soon agree to help, and yes, but it's only if they were allowed to seize more land to the north of themselves. And desperately, the Zhao obviously took this deal because they are desperate to no end. Help is help, and who cares if it is at the price of less of the land of the small way state. So the Chu step up and begin to invade. And the three Jin's way state, 
realize that, look, there's really no point at this moment to risk some massive war with the Chu all because their neighbor invaded somebody else. Come on, we're not going to risk all that. So the Zhao in the end are actually able to hold parts in the northern sections of the small Wei state, the W-E-Y one, and the Chu state get their taste. So for now, though, the, you know, there's tepid peace in the region. But come on now, guys. This is the Warring States period, not the Warring Jin States period. So it comes as no surprise that at the same time elsewhere in the Chinese realm, there were more conflicts. In 379 BC, the Qi state began to shake up their own internal power system. They didn't want to, but it happened. So if you are not driving, I recommend you go to the website dormroomhistory.com and check out the post for this episode to see the map so you can have a better understanding of where everything is. So far, we already had four states engage in a multi-sided conflict, and now we're at another state. So if you could follow along, it could go a long way, because I'll admit it, I'm looking at a map as we speak right now. But okay, so nonetheless, the Duke of the Qi State died in 379 BC, but he unfortunately committed the worst thing you could ever do as a monarchical leader. He didn't have an heir. This is a hereditary system. One clear heir lets the always, I mean always, tricky event of succession go by a lot more smoothly, and it really lowers the chance of something horrible happening. The Qi state now, though, does not in any way have that luxury. And to make things more complicated, the now dead Duke of Qi was from the Jiang family. And yet many of these states were run like mini dynasties, with families running the show for long, long, long periods of time, but with no heir to the Jiang family, they really don't have a choice and just fade away. So you are really beginning to see the depths and the complexities of the Warring States period here, because not only is there state-on-state conflict like we just saw up in the north with the Wei, Wei, Zhao, and Chu states, but there is endless conflicts just within states. Regardless, it is the House of Tian that takes the reins of the Qi state. And that house, the House of Tian, is led by an utterly fascinating character in the form of Tian Yin Qi. How is he fascinating, though? Well, for starters, he doesn't take the Duke position name and just name himself Duke of Qi in the history books. No, instead, and this is what makes him so interesting, he declares himself king of Qi, not duke. That's a new one. No longer is he the duke of a state, he is now the king of a land. The Qi themselves, by the way, under the leadership of new king of Qi, immediately went on a tirade around the region and began eating up pieces of the Wei state, the Jiao state, and, yes, this is confusing, the small, not three Jin state of Wei, Wei. So he took a piece of both Wei's and the Zhao. And King Wei of Qi was so good at his job that he even got the seemingly terminally dysfunctional Qi state to actually experience internal peace for a while. They hadn't felt that in a long time. He essentially gets the Qi state to go from kind of a fledgling mess to being the de facto hegemon of China. And it is stated that not one state whatsoever even attempted an assault on them. 
and after becoming the undisputed power broker in China, he then had himself declared king here. This is where it happens. He sort of, you know, dominates, shows his, his muscles, and this is where he says, I am king of Qi. But he wasn't just the king of the Qi vassal state. No, it wasn't just a cool name. But he was also not declaring himself king of the Zhou dynasty. No. And this is what makes him so fascinating, you know, besides all the cool stuff he did. But under his leadership, the Qi state broke away entirely from the dynasty. Clean independence. Now, you would have thought it would have not taken this long for just, you know, one single state at some point to break away from the dynasty. But alas, it did. And it happened now under the Qi state. And now you can see that the warring states are hitting their terminal phase. You're beginning to see some consolidation here. The way of the three Jins is beginning to take up more land. The Zhao beginning to fight for a little more land. The Chu getting a little bigger. Yes, it's all at the expense of the little guys. And now you see that the Qi are taking more and more power for themselves. And the size and sophistications of these conflicts will grow from local warlords squabbling or families fighting each other to instead consisting of the largest armies on earth at the time battling each other for supremacy of all the rest of the states. And all of this happened while back in the Jin state, the three Jins are officially put to rest because the way Zhao and Han finally removed the Duke of the Jin, subsequently divided up the remaining land, and thus marked the end of the three Jins. So, sitting in around the year 350, and we don't really know, it's around this time. You know, some event starts, event two then starts, event two ends, then event one ends. They're sort of all overlapping with different time frames here, but the fact is, war is everywhere. The Qi state has left the dynasty, and power begins to be consolidated. Alliances are beginning to be made, and states are beginning to reach juggernaut levels of effectiveness in military works. But there can only be one winner. And it's not the Qi yet. Look, they've conquered a bits of all the states around them, and they've, they're the most powerful at the time. But the only way to seemingly end this warring states period is to conquer all of them. And that looks pretty difficult at the moment. But we'll get to that, and next week we will begin to talk about the big conflicts. As states begin to consolidate, the whole landscape begins to change. Again, there can only be one winner. And that winner will not be decided next episode, but you'll begin to see the awe-inspiring level of bloodshed and political intrigue that make up the Warring States period. So, I'm sorry for the delay. It won't happen again. Oh, maybe it will, but I'll update you better next time. But... Thank you so much for listening. Please, you know, share the podcast if you love it. And I'll see you all next week on the history of China. <laughs>